Amen. Thank you, Vicky Wright. It's good to have you with us today. Vicky is an incredible musician, and we go way back. I coached her daughter, Meg, in church league basketball when I was in college. And, uh, you know, children are interesting. Birth order matters, right? My mom's really into this birth order thing. You know, Meg's very, she's, is she the firstborn, is that right? She's, that's right. And then Jake, is Jake the, he's the baby? Okay, yeah, he's the baby. So, so Jake has long hair, travels the world, right? He's frisbee, bass player, I mean, all these, and Meg's like, what, is she an attorney or something in New York? Or She's very high-powered, very put-together, you know, uh, my, my, my children, the firstborn is a rule follower, right? Uh, and, and he can't understand why the third one is not a rule follower. And as we entered the sanctuary today, uh, little Zeke, uh, Alex Whittle's uh, two-year-old, who's the same age as our Isaiah, they're, the exact, they're almost three years old. And, and Zeke's such a, uh, he's a, he's a good kid. He's a very well-behaved two-year-old, and ours is, is not so much. So Jude, Jude mentioned to, to his grandmother and to his dad that uh, it seems like your two-year-old is so much better behaved than ours. And Jana had to explain to him that birth order matters and that uh, he is the firstborn of Alex and uh, ours is the thirdborn. My, my family and I had this great opportunity to go to the beach on spring break. My parents rented a house near 30A Inlet Beach. And there's a little state park right next to uh, Inlet Beach, and, and we kept driving by it. It said Camp Helen State Park, and I said, we should go check that out. So one day, it was too windy to go to the beach. The wind was just hitting you in the face. It was painful. So we said, let's go to Camp Helen State Park. This will be a great adventure. We loaded up Isaiah in the wagon, and we, we walked. It was about three-quarters of a mile from the house we were staying in to the entrance to the park. And we, we finally get there, and we go up this hill, and there's a gate at the park, and there's a, a box, a lockbox, and it says $4 per vehicle, $2 for pedestrian or cyclist. And then it said, please use the honor box. And of course, Morgan and I had left our wallets at the house, and you know, I thought we were honorable people. We had made an honorable mistake, and it was gonna be fine. We could go and walk around the park anyway, but Jude was not having it. He said, Dad, we can't be here. We, don't, we haven't paid anything. I'm like, yeah, it'll be fine. You know, I'm, I'm the baby of my family. So, of course, I have no problem at all breaking the rules. And, and we, I even told Morgan I was going to tell this story. She said, no, you can't tell people that. They're going to think we're bad people for breaking the rules. I'm like, oh, it's fine. We just walked in there. It's fine anyway. But Jude could not get over it. He kept panicking. I had to explain to him that we were not not going to be arrested. We would not spend the night in jail for doing what we were doing. He, 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 I don't know where he learned the word trespassing, but he accused us of trespassing. <laughs> in the passage that we see for today in John, the, the question is one of Jesus's authority. Does he have the permission to do the things that he does? Does he have permission to be in the place that he's in? Does he have the permission to say the things that he says. Jesus addresses these questions of authority, permission, and legitimacy in the text that we are going to read for today. John chapter 5, verses 9 through 30. Will you stand with me if you're able to in honor of God's word as we read from John chapter 5 about the authority of Jesus Christ. 
So Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does, that the son does likewise. For the father loves the son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these will he show him, so that you may marvel. For as the father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the son gives life to whom he will. The father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the son, that all may honor the son just as they honor the father. Whoever does not honor the son does not honor the father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may have a seat. You know, the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem decided that Jesus did not, in fact, have permission to do these things that he was doing. They questioned his legitimacy to his claims that he was making. He was making these bold claims to be equal with God. It's like, again, that question of authority. So we see Jesus here defending his work, defending his ministry against the Jewish authorities there in Jerusalem. I remember last week we looked at the story earlier in this chapter where Jesus heals this man who has been essentially paralyzed by the pool of Bethesda for 38 years. And after he's healed, he gets in trouble for carrying his bedroll, his mat, uh, up at the temple area, the Jewish leaders say, you can't carry that on the Sabbath day. And when he gets busted, he, he blames it on Jesus. He says, well, he told me to. And they said, who? And he just said, I don't know, just some guy. I'm going to find out. And then Jesus finds him in the temple and explains who he is. So this man goes back to the authorities and tells on Jesus again and says, it was Jesus who healed me. Surely Healing someone is a lot worse. It's a lot more work than just carrying a little bedroll. That guy's the bad guy. And Jesus doesn't deny it. He doesn't get into an argument with the Jewish leaders. He just owns it. He says, yeah, I am working. Look at back at verse 16 of chapter 5. This was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath, terrible things like healing people and such. But Jesus answered them, my father is working until now, and I am working. Yeah, I'm breaking the Sabbath. What are you going to do about it? And we talked last week how the Jewish leaders understood exactly what Jesus was saying. Look at verse 18. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, 
Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. The fact that Jesus is equating himself with the divine father of, of all, and he's equating his own ministry with God the Father's ministry, that is a death sentence. The authorities decide then that from that point on, Jesus must die because he's making this huge claim to be divine, which in fact he was. You know, when it comes to making big, bold claims, I'm not sure <clears throat> anyone's ever done that better than Muhammad Ali. I've seen the video footage, right, where he he knocks the guy out and he's interviewed immediately and he's all sweaty and he's got his gloves taped to him and he says, I shook up the world, me, I shook up the world. It's just fun to watch. Later, he said, uh, I should be on a postage stamp. That's the only way I'll ever get licked. I love that. <laughs> he said, I am the greatest. I said that even before I knew I was. And one of my favorites was before he fought George Foreman in the, the Rumble in the Jungle, 1974. He, he said in an interview, I've wrestled with alligators. I've tussled with a whale. I've done handcuffed lightning and thrown thunder in jail. That's bad. Only last week I murdered a rock, injured a stone, hospitalized a brick. I'm so mean I make medicine sick. <laughs> I love that. These are bold claims indeed. Bold claims he was making. In the passage that we read today, we see Jesus doubling down on the claim that he was equal to the Father. That is a bold claim. He explains to these Jewish leaders what this means by making three more bold claims. The first one starts in verse 19. And you see three times in this passage that Jesus says, truly, truly, or verily, verily, if you're using the King James or some of these newer translations say, I tell you the truth. It, it's like he's saying, what I'm about to say, you have to accept. There can be no measure of contradiction in what I'm saying. You have to accept this as gospel truth. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the father doing. He's part of the Trinity, three in one, distinct persons, but one Godhead, unified in purpose and being. He says, whatever the Father does, that the, that the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. So the first great claim here that Jesus is making is that he does what the Father does. There's a unity of the action of God the Father and God the Son. What God the Father does, the Son does also. What the Father is doing in his work of redeeming this fallen world back into himself. What the Father's mission is of reconciling all things back into himself. Jesus is the cornerstone of that work. He's the mission. He is achieving the work of God of redeeming this broken and sick, sin-sick world back into himself. You know, I love the game of basketball. It's fun to watch the final four games last night. I love to coach basketball and coach those girls a long time ago. And have, I've coached every year, just about for 20 years, church league basketball. Usually now I'm coaching Jude's team, which is fun. And I'm trying to get third graders to understand that basketball is a team sport, right? Basketball is played at its best when teams are working as one. 
when they're passing, when the ball's moving, when they're cutting without the ball, when they're rotating on defense and they're, they're calling out picks and screens and they're working together to defend and to, to get the ball in the basket as one unit, right? That's the way the game should be played. I get so frustrated with isolation plays in the NBA and in college, watching everybody clear out for the star player just to take his person one-on-one. I love how basketball should be played, but the only way you can play that way is with incredible unity and teamwork. Everybody has to be on the same page. They have to be so in sync. And sometimes that takes playing together for years. You have to play hundreds and hundreds of games together in order to have that kind of teamwork and chemistry and unity as a team. Jesus and God the Father are perfectly in sync in their work. While they are two distinct persons, you know, Jesus came to earth and took on flesh in the incarnation while God remained, God the Father remained on his heavenly throne, but they still function as one. And there's also a beautiful image here in verse 20 of of a father kind of apprenticing his son, right? The father loves the son, it says in verse 20, and shows him all that he's doing. You know, I learned to, to swing a golf club from my dad. Don't hold that against my dad, those of you that have seen me play golf. But <laughs> I learned to shoot a basket, uh, basketball from my dad in the driveway. He showed me how to do it correctly. You know, I, I tried to mimic what my dad was doing in these activities. And he didn't do them because he wanted me to be some collegiate athlete or something. He did them because he loved me. And he wanted to spend time with me and, and teach me things and help me thrive and enjoy life to the fullest. So it is with God the Father and Jesus. God the Father loves the Son and he invites the Son into this reconciling work that he's doing and they do it together as one. It's a beautiful thing. At the end of verse 20, Jesus says, not only do I do what God does in terms of working on the Sabbath day and healing, remember God rested on the seventh day, but he didn't fully rest because the universe would collapse if he did that. That's why Jesus says, I work on the Sabbath too, because my dad works on the Sabbath. But then he says, and greater works than these will he, the Father, show him the Son. Greater things than healing the lame on the Sabbath. You're going to see things that will make you marvel. Greater things, the next claim of Christ here is that he has the power not only to heal, but to give life itself. He is the life giver. Look at verse 21. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. Then skip down to verse 24. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. That sounds like John 3.16, doesn't it? He does not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. There is now, therefore, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Romans 8.1. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming, verse 25, and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he's granted to the Son also to have life in himself. Jesus is the one who imparts life to the dead. 
Here he claims that he will take those who are dead in their sins and in their trespasses, those like you and me who used to walk as dead people, the walking dead that we were, that he has made us alive with him through his resurrection. What could be greater than that claim? What could be greater than saying, I'm the one who brings dead things to life? That's what Jesus was talking about with Nicodemus back in chapter 3 when this great Jewish leader, Nicodemus, comes to him by night. He tells him he must be born again. He must be born from above. He must be born into a whole new kind of humanity, a new way of existing in this life. Nothing's more important than the work that Jesus does of bringing dead things to life. That's the, the centerpiece of the mission of God. It's why Jesus came to earth, to seek and save the lost. It's the primary way in which God is bringing about the reconciliation of this fallen world by redeeming his beloved crown of creation, the human beings who were made in his own image, bringing humans who were dead to life is the greatest work that Jesus does. And he's constantly calling us to life, not, not just surviving, not just going to heaven when we die, but he's calling us to abundant life now and forever. And Jesus can be called the life giver, it says here, because as the Father has life in himself, so he's also granted to the Son to have life in himself. You know, God breathed life into all of creation in Genesis 1 and 2, and now he's given Jesus the authority to get, grant eternal life to those who believe in him and his name and his ability to save them from their sins. This is a bold claim, that he will bring dead things to life forever. The last claim that Jesus makes on this day is that he is the final judge. Look at verse 27. God the Father has given him, the Son, authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this. Marvel at the way he gives life. Don't marvel at this, that Jesus is the judge, because an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out those who've done good to the resurrection of life and those who've done evil to the resurrection of judgment. We don't talk enough about the resurrection. We talk about one glad morning, I'll fly away and get out of this earth. That's, that's not what the Bible talks about. The Bible talks about one day at the end of all things when Jesus Christ breaks back into our reality, into this physical world, in the flesh, with a million angels behind him, riding on the wings of the storm, as we sang earlier, his chariots of wrath, the deep thunder clouds form, and dark is his path on the wings of the storm. And he breaks into our world and says, enough, no more violence, no more injustice, no more cancer, no more poverty, no more politics, no more corruption. He's going to make all the wrongs right. And it won't be the voice of the Father. It won't be the voice of the Spirit that calls all the dead back unto life. It'll be the voice of the Son. 
It'll be the voice of Jesus Christ who returns and calls everyone to judgment. And the Bible says that when he comes, then we'll begin the final act in the story of everything ever. The new heavens, the new earth will then be established and Jesus Christ will be the one who reigns together with God the Father and God the Holy Spirit and all of us who are part of the redeemed. I love the way C.S. Lewis describes this moment. Jude's reading through the Chronicles of Narnia right now. It's incredible to see him uh, wrestle with these, these truths that are uh, portrayed in, in these stories that C.S. Lewis tells. But in the, in the last book of the series, the last battle near the end of the book, Aslan, the great lion, the, the Christ figure in the Chronicles of Narnia, tells the, the Pevensey children that they're actually dead and that they've, they've been killed in a, a train accident and their earthly existence is over. And he writes this, that as Aslan spoke, he no longer looked to them like a lion. But the things that began to happen after that were so great and beautiful that I cannot write them. And for us, this is the end of all the stories. And we can most truly say that they all lived happily ever after. But for them, it was only the beginning of the real story. All their life in this world and all their adventures in Narnia had only been the cover and title page. Now at last, they were beginning chapter one of the great story, which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever, in which every chapter is better than the one before. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. This is true for those of us who are in Christ, that our lives here are so short, and, and, and what happens here matters for eternity, but eternity is what we look forward to. The authority of Christ will call each of us forth to a new life, to a resurrected existence. And, and this new life is, is the rest of the story, and our life now on earth is only the introduction. Jesus Christ will preside in the, the final judgment. And he has the authority to do so because he is the Son of Man. John is intentionally referencing uh, Jesus' favorite self-designation for him, himself was the Son of Man. It's a reference to Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14, where this righteous judge comes back into the world to judge the world in justice. It says in verse 13, Daniel says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Jesus, as the Son of Man, returns in full humanity, which helps us to identify with him in his humility, but also fully divine, and therefore able to judge rightly, to bring justice, and to establish a peaceful kingdom that will never end. So three bold claims that Jesus makes, that he has the identity of action with the Father, that he does what the Father does, that he has the power to give life, that he is the life giver, and that he has the authority to judge. Do we accept those three claims today? Do you believe that these are true, 
We must think about these things and decide for ourselves if we really believe them or not because these are eternal, weighty, bold claims and they call for action in our daily lives as we submit to their reality, not our own. If we submit to the lordship of Christ in these three claims, then those are claims that one day we will be accountable for, whether we believe them or not. We will all one day give an account as to how we lived our lives, whether we submitted to these three claims as true or we didn't. You know, Muhammad Ali talked a big game, but he also achieved a lot of amazing victories and, and was an underdog in a lot of fights that he actually won. He was a pretty incredible boxer, to say the least. He once said, it's not bragging if you can back it up. <laughs> his authority to say the things that he was saying was backed up by his performance. There's a phrase that's, that's come about in, in pop culture. Do you, do you know what it means when someone says, they're the goat? They're the goat. Have you heard that before? You know what that means? The, the greatest of all time, G-O-A-T, the goat. You know, Jack Nicholas was the goat. You know, Tom Brady, after winning his sixth Super Bowl and owning every single postseason record that you possibly could have in professional football, Many writers were saying he's the goat. He's the greatest of all time. People were posting pictures on social media with just a, a goat picture and Tom Brady because he's the greatest. It's hard to argue that anyone else has ever been greater when it comes to quarterbacking, especially in the postseason, because his performance backs up that claim of being the greatest of all time. So after saying that he was the greatest of all time, Ali went out and tried to prove it. He tried to make that a reality. But of course, he ended up losing fights. He was not undefeated. He, he, his age and disease caught up with him. Only Jesus Christ is the only one who perfectly backs up the claim of being the greatest of all time. Rachel said she wants our children to know that Jesus is the greatest, and he backs it up perfectly time and time again. When Jesus died on the cross, he perfectly paid our debt that we could never have paid in order to make us right with himself and with God the Father forever and ever. And then when he rose again, that glorious Easter morning that we look forward to in just a few weeks here, he established himself as the greatest of all time, superior to death, superior to Satan and his allies, superior to anything that this world could possibly offer us. In one fell swoop, Jesus defeated the greatest enemy, Satan and death forever. There is no one greater than Jesus Christ. There never will be. He is the savior of the world, the life giver and the judge. He's the one who does what the Father does. He's the one who makes dead things alive. And he's the one who is coming again to fix everything that's wrong. Let's pray. Our Lord God, we thank you for not leaving us here to our own sin, our own devices, but that you sent your own Son so that whoever believes in him and his ability to make us right with yourself should not perish, but have eternal life, life to the fullest. 
God, we know that the enemy has come into the world to steal and to kill and to destroy. He's trying to destroy us every minute of every day, emotionally, physically, mentally, and most of all, spiritually. But you have come that we may not perish, but have eternal life and life to the fullest, abundant life, overflowing life that springs from a well that never runs dry. It's because of your grace, your love, your forgiveness, your mercy, that we can be called children of God. We thank you for lavishing that kind of love and grace on us. I pray that we would live our lives according to these truths, that we would make none greater in our lives than Jesus Christ, that we would submit to the lordship, the authority, and the greatness of Jesus above all. God, we tend to replace the lordship of Christ with things in our lives, things like money, things like control, things like our own reputation, maybe our families. God, these are not bad things, but they are not ultimate things either. May we remember that Jesus Christ is Lord of all, and yet you have given us the ability to call him friend. God, I pray that you would help us to live into that reality, to walk daily with our Lord and our friend, Jesus Christ. God, we thank you for this time together, for the time in your word. We pray all these things in your high and your holy name, the name of Jesus Christ, amen. We're gonna have a time of invitation now. If you just wanna come forward and pray with somebody, Trey, uh, if you'll come forward. Jane, if you'll come forward. Is Jane, there she is, yeah. Uh, if you wanna pray with someone, they'll be here. If you just wanna come kneel at the altar and pray, uh, these beautiful flowers given by the, the Whittle family in honor of Jean Jolly. Uh, Jean Jolly was a saint. I was telling Mark about her. Uh, in this church, uh, her legacy uh, lives on, and we are so grateful for those who've gone before us. If you want to live that kind of life like Jean did, where you're a blessing to everybody, where the grace of God overflows out of you into the lives of others, I encourage you to renew your dedication to Christ today. I'm looking forward to Easter Sunday. It's going to be a beautiful uh, Sunday. We're going to baptize. Uh, it's going to be an incredible picture of dead things coming alive. And if that's you, if you've never been raised to life in Jesus Christ, there's no better time to do so than right now. I'd love to come talk to you about that right now during our invitation. Whatever it is that you need to do, if you want to join this church, maybe you've given your life to Christ, but you've never been baptized by immersion following Jesus' example, and you're ready to make your public profession of faith, I'd love to talk with you about that today, too. Whatever it is that you need to do during this time, let's stand and sing Jesus, a friend to sinners. Let's sing.